Stanford University. He's a professor of uh, Middle Eastern Studies and Sociology at NYU, and he directs what is now being called the Iranian Study Initiative. Although they're still an initiative, they're very active and keep seeing their programs, and uh, so it's a very active initiative. I wish them great success. Uh, he has a bachelor's from Tehran University, and uh, he graduated just, uh, I think, uh, a year before uh, or two years before I arrived there. He has a PhD in sociology from the American University. Uh, he has very successfully applied uh, Western critical theory uh, of uh, the kind you all are familiar with to the experience of modernity in Iran. He's written extensively about this experience and applying critical theory. He has come up with some very interesting uh, results. Uh, Last year, uh, I had the good fortune of using one of his books, Political Islam, Iran and Enlightenment, uh, in one of my classes. And I knew then that we have to have him here and have everybody hear what he has to say. I asked him uh, to kindly focus his talk on one of the enigmas of intellectual history in Iran, uh, the marvelous Mr. Fadid. So I will let him uh, introduce the marvels of the man called Fadid. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Dr. Milani, for inviting me and for your very gracious review of my book. Of course, I enjoyed uh, reading your review and sharing it with, um, with others. And thank you all for, for coming and being here, here even if you don't turn uh, off your, uh, your phones. That, that's fine. Um, um, I have to tell you that this is the first time in my life that I'm doing a uh, PowerPoint. Um, and I have no idea of what's going to happen. Um, I'm a pretty old-fashioned person. <laughs> I, although for today, for instance, I have um, I've been actually working on, on this paper on Fardid for since I finished the book, and I have a paper of about 60 pages. But I have to also, uh, with my hand, write my notes and make sure that. Um, I can read my own handwriting and uh, have a structure of the the, the the literature. But you know, I I did this PowerPoint not really because of this fancy kind of thing. It's because um, I wanted to share with you some pictures at the end that are non-political and just hopefully fun. And since this is a Stanford and you know. We are academics, I just created some other things with it. But the main goal of having this PowerPoint is to show you some very recent pictures of Fadid's home that is a foundation now, in, in case you haven't seen it. So don't, so don't worry about the PowerPoint. Um, I want to say 
make two comments about the title and subtitle of my talk. Um, the Political Islam's Romance with the West is a uh, title of a chapter of my book, Political Islam, Iran and the Enlightenment, which is a book that tries to make this argument that um, the scholars, at least the scholars in the, in the West, in English-speaking West, have routinely underestimated what I call the non-Islamic elements of political Islam. The argument that I try to make in this book, in the book, is that almost all ideologues, or if you want a more neutral term, intellectuals of political Islam, at least in Iran, although my argument is that this goes by far beyond the Iranian nation state, at least in Iranian case, are extremely influenced by Western ideas in formulating their idea of the politicalism. Uh, the obvious cases are um, Al-Ahmad, a former communist and a secularist who um, popularizes the, the notion of Bab Zadigi from, um, from Ahmed Fadid, Shay Ati, who is a sort of a liberal nationalist uh, member of the National Front who go in Paris and becomes a um, born-again Muslim, um, and many others, including Fadi. Um, and again, I don't think that my argument only applies to Iran, but for, for tonight, I want to focus on Iran. Um, and I, my argument in the book is that this has a uh, important and critical consequences that if we don't understand what the nature of political Islam as an intellectual enterprise at this point, my focus is on political Islam as an intellectual force. If we don't understand where it comes from uh, and what its intellectual elements are, um, which I believe for many actually eminent scholars that's to be the case. Either we embrace it as representing the authentic Iranian or Islamic traditional way of life and praise it. Um, I think people like Esposito, Ivan Haddad and others who are scholars of Islam have and do that. They really see political Islam as representing the authentic, um, traditional um, culture of the Islamic world, and our criticism of political Islam as uh, inauthentic and illegitimate. Or you go to the other extreme and basically um, come up with a what I feel is a self-defeating intellectual strategy that blaming every act that a political leader uh, makes, say in Iran or in Afghanistan or in Pakistan or in Egypt, 
as we're presenting the true Islam, and then you invite us to get rid of Islam. I think this is politically self-defeating, and I feel that is intellectually dishonest. Um, so the political Islam romance with the, with the West, I, I particularly want to focus on romance to say that it wasn't that these intellectuals in a marginal way were influenced by some ideas from the past. There was a romance, there was a serious engagement with romance. In fact, it says, um, I am, um, and I, I'm going to use the Persian word for it, Ham Sohane, um, a speech partner of Heidegger. Uh, he never said that about uh, Prophet Muhammad or any other revered Islamic figure. Um, he also said later on, I get into this, is that Fardid was Han Sukhane Imam Khomeini, which is also very interesting. Uh, Heidegger was. Uh, Fardid said that Heidegger was Han Sukhane Imam Khomeini. Um, so one, one comment about the marvelous life and uh, <laughs> thought of Ahmad Fardid. Um, as I said, I have been working on, on Fardid's project for a few months. Uh, after I published my book, I realized that I need to really look at this case. Because while I was writing that book, I just realized that, that there is very little about Fardid available. Or whatever is available are hearsays that people just say and just repeat. Or worse than that, on almost everything about Fardid, whether it's about his life and particularly his ideas, there are contradictory statements by people who claim to be there at the time. So I decided with, with the book, it's enough. I know enough to, to make the case. I don't want to devote a chapter on, on Fardid. But as I have been working on this, I just reala realized that Marvelous is the only concept that I can use to, to describe him. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that. And again, this is very simple. If you just look at the dictionary, these are the meanings of marvelous. I'm using it in an obviously ironic way. Uh, on the one hand, it means hard to believe. Everything about Fadid is hard to believe. Causing great wonder. It really causes great wonder. Awesome and awful. This is particularly because I think Fadid is both awesome and awful. There are moments of brilliance and long moments of dark and brutal Im images that come to your mind when you read um, ideas that he expresses. Um, it also means a strange, supernatural, and eye-opening. It is eye-opening. <laughs> it is sort of supernatural, particularly if you don't understand what he says. Now, I have to say one more thing, and that is that, in a sense, we are lucky tonight that this lecture is in English. Um, because in Farsi, it's hard to understand what this guy is saying. In fact, 
Um, translating him is almost impossible. I have had two graduate students helping me. But when I read this in English, it makes by far more sense than in Farsi. And this is known, obviously. Everybody knows that. Um, but um, I don't think we have time. Maybe if you have time, I read something in Farsi to, to, to see that it's, it's almost incomprehensible. There is no way that we can understand this. Now, I want to say something in Francis. By the way, if you are into gossip, I don't think there is any other Iranian intellectual that you can spend two, three, four years on gossips and publish this, and I think this would be the most popular intellectual book that anyone has ever, ever, ever written about Fadi. There are so many gossips and rumors about him. I have actually tried not to include them, although I may mention some of them, because it's just hard to substantiate anything. And when I say this, with, for this research, I have contacted and interviewed some of the uh, individuals who were, for instance, part of the Fardidia group, some of his close students and associates post-revolution time, and many others, uh, but still it's, it's a wonder. You don't know what, whether he was influence, influential in post-revolutionary or not at all. You don't know if he was an important figure in Fardidia, the sole central figure or, or not. People have totally different views. Um, that makes my job a little difficult. Um, but please bear with me because I have to choose at some point one version over another. In question and answer, I would be happy to give you background information or tell you why I, I choose one, um, one version over another. Um, but that's what you need to do. That actually starts with his date of birth. Farid himself actually in different places gives different dates for his, his um, date of birth. Aray um, Ashuri, who I believe would be here soon, um, I think made a statement that he, early on he exaggerated his age so that he would be taken more seriously and later on tried to say I'm younger. Um, I have looked at some official documents and um, we have decided for tonight's purposes that he was born in Yazd in 1909. I think this, is, this must be accurate because as you will see later, we have his um, um, high school diploma and bachelor's degree and some other documents, they, are all, they all have this. Um, however, even in those documents, uh, in most of them it says that he was born in Yazd, although in one of them it says he was born in Tehran. Um, he was born in Yazd, although Ahmad Fadid was not his name, his real name. His real name was Sayyid Ahmad Mahini. Uh, later on, when he moved to Tehran, 
um, and he became a secularist and modernist intellectual, he changed his name. And of course, the only reason we know this is because he said so. There is no other um, information. Uh, so what I want to do is that to briefly, and I have to really be very brief, just share with you his life narrative, the marvelous life, and that explains some of his ideas. Is that okay? The way actually I have written the paper is that I have integrated both together, but unless I read the paper, I, I can't do that verbally. I have to say that most of the information that I share with you about his earlier part of his life are based on the only information we have about his early life, which is an interview he did with Mowedi, who had a TV show in Iran before revolution, but he was also a writer for Rastakhi's newspaper. So he interviewed him about his life, and this was published. Um, although there are different versions of this everywhere, and in many of these versions, nobody says that where the biography comes from, particularly in post-revolutionary Iran, his students and sort of official biography is always published without saying uh, that this was an interview with Mowedi that was published in Rastafis. But there is no other documentation about, about his early life. I just assume that is true. There are serious reasons to think that he is a man who always bragged about himself, but I have no other information that would contradict this. So he was born in Yazd in um, 1909, um, which means that he was, his, he grew up, his childhood, his childhood basically happened um, during the early years of Reza Shah. Um, what is strange is that repeatedly in several interviews he said that I'm a child of Mashrute constitution. And he said, well, when I was like in high school or in college, um, the intellectual environment was the intellectual environment of Mashrute, which is totally wrong, <laughs> which it wasn't. Um, but I think Fadid want to say that the, the, these two periods of times are the same. It is very interesting that when he was 12 years old, in 1921, his father sent him in Yazd to, to school and got a tutor for him to learn Arabic and French. This is a little unusual. Um, he says his father was a farmer, but a little investigation shows that he was his, <laughs> maybe father in terms of what in pre-Islamic Iran called Dehqan. Uh, it seems that he comes from a pretty well-off family, uh, and not farmer in a way that we understand it. Keshavars, he says, not Keshavars, but uh, but even for a well-off family. It is rather unusual that in, in the 20s, um, his father sent him to, to study, to learn these two languages. Um, um, by the time he 
claims. By the time he was 14 or 16, depending on which interview, uh, he claims to be able to read a scholarly text in both French and in um, Arabic. Um, it's true that he had some kind of religious or maybe traditional education, although it's not clear. Um, I have no evidence that shows that he really did any serious, um, what we call traditional education, but certainly he went through the, um, the, the regular education that everybody else goes on. Um, by the time he's 16, he moves to Tehran and studies at Dorofono. And he, um, now, let me see if I can work with this. This is not necessary, but just to show off. Oh. I remember, no, okay, I have to go one back. Anyhow, I wanted to show you the, his diploma from the, from, is it this? Yes. Yeah, I think this is. Um, so he, 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 he receives his um, high school degree from, um, from um, Darul Funun, and then he goes to Darisaray Ali. It's basically Iranian teacher college. Darisaray Ali, okay. Um, and what is interesting that he gets his degree from Darisaray Ali, his major is, there are two lines of majors in almost everything, from French to philosophy to teaching, and so on and so forth. Um, so he had, uh, French language was the first, general psychology, basic and history of philosophy, and ancient philosophy. Um, that's very interesting because later on I never saw any, any degree like this. But his real love was learning languages. And he claims that by this time, by the time he graduated from Danisaray Ali, he knew German, French, uh, Arabic, a um, couple of ancient Iranian languages, and some Asian languages, Persian and Asian. Right? I want to make a differentiation about this. Whether this is true or not, we don't know. It is, we, I will show you some pictures of his uh, library. It is true that he obviously uh, knew French, German, and Arabic, and read important first uh, original texts in those languages. Whether he knew Sanskrit, Pahlavi, and other languages, he claims that he did. Um, I just assume he did. Um, but for him, knowing languages is very important philosophical experience. It's not just a way of accessing certain cultural and certain texts. Uh, he says, I think, um, oh, he says, well, like I said in both of you, he said, um, languages were uh, a stagecoach, 
coach that took me from Iran to the far distant places in the world. And, and this is very important. I, I will later come back to this. Now, in his 20s, he wrote the first article he wrote, which I may have it here, although... It's hard to go back. He wrote a piece called From Kant to Heidegger. I, I would say that it is pretty amazing that for a 20 plus year old um, Iranian young man in the in the 30s to 40s and 40s to write yeah that's it to write uh, this this was published in Shabab Sorh the um, the newspaper that Karizadeh um, published that is that true anybody uh, this, it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. He published basically um, two articles, two essays. Uh, this was supposed to be a series of essays. He only wrote, wrote two of them, from Kant to Heidegger, one and Kant to Heidegger, uh, two. And then later he published another article called Bergson and Bergsonian Philosophy. That was published in Sohat. Um, um, I still would argue that um, this is a time that in Iran, Marxism was pretty strong among intellectuals, and positivism was, was really the dominant um, uh, mode of thinking about Iranian intellectuals. But, um, but certainly, I think I, we can document this, that he was the first person who uh, who wrote about Heidegger, for instance, um, in uh, Iran? But um, 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 and this is this is at a time that uh, it doesn't seem that anybody uh, knew much about Heidegger. There are other evidence, for, for instance, Sadiq um, Elayat, um, the Iranian novelist and intellectual, uh, writes about Hadid that. Um, um, you know, at times, Fadid, he says, can be very brilliant, but he's a very strange man and can be also very stupid. Uh, but he says, well, Fadid gave me some books that are very interesting. Um, it is interesting, when, when, and he named the books. When you look at these books, these are mainly books by Christian existentialists, philosophers, like... Um, um, Kierkegaard, Berlioz, and others. Um, I think what I find interesting is that, and this is when this guy is in his early 30s or maybe late 20s, uh, these are not the kind of books that Iranian intellectuals at the time would read. And in fact, Hedayat says that, that, you know, this seems a little strange. These are interesting, but I don't know what this guy is into. Um, there is quite a lot we don't know about him. Uh, he was friend with Hedayat, and 
they would go to the, the cafes and would engage in, in intellectual discussions. One thing we know is that Hedayat said that and a couple of others at the time that his strange behaviors. For instance, he would just interrupt a speaker and would, um, would, would interrupt the speaker in, in a way that an event like this would just stop and people would go home. He would go and uh, knock on the, on the podium with his shoes or something like that. There are evidence of those kind of behaviors that Fadi would engage uh, in. Um, nothing about his political affiliations during this very political time. And now we are talking about the 40s. Um, the only thing we know is that he was very close to Muzaffar Bawai. Uh, I'm sure that you know he was. Muzaffar Bawai, I haven't done any research on him. He claims to have a PhD in philosophy. I just assume it's true because I come back to this very hard. <coughs> Um, but he was also a very mysterious, a strange kind of person who was close to Musaddeh, then betrayed him. And um, he is another phenomenon that if there is any PhD students here who is yearning for a topic, you know, that's one. Now, I want, to, I want to now go a little quickly and finish his life and get into his ideas. Um, then he leaves for, he leaves for France. Um, he studies in Sorbonne for three years. Now, to tell you how horrible and difficult it is to research this guy, I have contacted every person in the world to see what he did at Sorbonne. I have nothing. Now, the closest I have come up, come up there, a couple of my students have helped me, particularly one graduate student who went to Iran and interviewed several of these students. All they could tell us, most of them had no idea. One of them actually gave a title of his master's degree. Um, which is on philosophy of intentionality. I don't know what it means, whether it's true or not. However, for instance, Avaya Ashuri thinks that he did nothing. He just murdered, got the scholarship, did nothing. I actually would argue that that's, that cannot be true. Because for one, and I will show you this later, in his library, there are books in French that were published at the time. And also, I have this in the, in the, in this, although I don't know whether I can find it. He was, there is a library card here. Doesn't necessarily mean much. But he, he is, it shows that he, he this is it. He is a member of the National Library in Paris. Um, he, um, um, but other than that, we don't know. And those of you who know Iranian bureaucratic system, um, because once I, I spent uh, almost a year in Iran, and my daughter, who at the time was the third grade, I wanted to, my, my daughter to just sit in a class 
just sit in a class informally. They asked for so many documentations that there was no way I could produce them. And they rejected them. Um, it is amazing that Fardid could have received full scholarship uh, without signing up in Sorbonne or anything, but we don't know anything. So he has been there for three years, and then he has spent between four to six, although some people also argue that eight years. I think four to six is probably more accurate. Years in Heidelberg, in Germany, and here is that it seems to me that Fabi changes. Um, now, let me see if I can go back. Assume that he has 
students and associates who think he is God. And I have contact with them, and they don't know what he did. Isn't it strange? It is totally strange. By the way, he is a, a, a man who always brags about himself. Uh, I think I have a... Well, this would take time. I have a, a, a page of his autobiography. He, he, he feels that he was a genius person. He says nothing, and we don't have anything. We have nothing. We don't know what he did. Everything that we say are just rumors. Um, he comes back in 1955 to Iran. He comes back. Let me try to see if I can be very fast on this. He comes back. Um, what is important here is these two periods of intellectual meetings, intellectual circles in the um, in the 60s and 70s, that is usually known as Fadidiyah. These are a group of eminent Iranian intellectuals, not as eminent as your book, but you know, the eminent among those eminents, who would get together mostly in Aghaye Amir Hussaini Jahan Baglu house, and would discuss things. Now, I thought, okay, this is not so bone for Germany, and I know some of these people, I'm going to interview them and find out what happened. Zero. Zip. It is amazing. This is not about Jesus, whether Jesus existed or not. This is what happened in these meetings in the 60s and 70s. Um, by the way, it's not that there were 20 years of these meetings. There was an interruption, but there were more than 10 years. Um, um, now, all the evidence we have that are produced by the revolution tells us that this was the central figure, and everything else, all the discussions went around Fadid's idea. Who participated? And again, some participated in the earlier one, some in the later one. There is no time to say this, but Darush Shaiban was there. Nas sometimes was there and sometimes was not. Hamide Nayat, your colleague, was there. Abay Jahan Baglu certainly was there. Dawai was there. Abay Jalili was there. Shahrukh Mesko. Was there? Um, I don't want to take your time, but more or less, except for Marxist intellectuals of the time, like Aryanpur, or maybe very religious intellectuals like Mutahari or Shariati, these are both secular and religious leaning eminent intellectuals of Iran, are there, and Fardid is at the core. Now, all the narratives. The stories after the revolution about these meetings are totally contradictory. And I have interviewed several of these people. Some people think that Fadid was a member, he just said a stupid thing, about everybody laughed at him. Dawai said that 
He was the Adab, you know, Ashuri and Shaitan who now um, who now claim that these were stupid meetings, they attended every single meeting for 20 years. And they always uh, praised him. Um, I talked to Ramin Jahanbaglu, these meetings took place in his parents' house. Um, you know, he seems to be more fair, although he was only 15 years old. He said, well, it was Fardi, yeah, Fardi, well, at the center, discussions were around Heidegger, Hafez, localism, this kind of thing, which makes sense. And Jalili was sometimes critical of him, that also makes sense. And Miskup would be sometimes critical, but he also said that everybody thought that he is the most brilliant man that Iran has produced. Now, I want to tell you something to say that there is some element of truth to this. Perhaps the most important critical piece about Fadid has been written by Abay Ashuri. Right? Ashuri basically portrayed him as an insane, stupid, lazy, unethical, what else? Fascist. Fascist person. Now, what is interesting is this. So, this is uh, Savonet Hall. This is the interview. You, you see these old titles also. He's just saying that I was born in this town, in this Savonet Hall. This is the interview with, um, with um, Mobedi. What did I want to show you? Oh, okay, okay, I know. No. Well, Fadi, well, let me come I don't want this. Ah, okay. Oh, no, I don't want this at all. Okay, don't worry. Fadi died in 1994. What? So this is day after the revolution. It was clear to everyone, certainly clear to the Iranian philosophers and intellectuals, who Fadi was. Fadi politically was very close to, to the sort of mysterious um, sort of mafia-like, very ultra-conservative um, faction of the Islamic Republic, close to Kehan. There were rumors that he was close, oh, actually Saeed Imami was his student. Anybody knows who Saeed Imami was? The, the Deputy Minister of Information, or the, um, the Iranian Secret Police in charge of national security, is really the person who is more important than the Minister. He certainly some of the leading um, editors of Kehan were close to him. Um, he was a leading figure in trying to clean up Iran from Dr. Soj and his students' ideas. And these are not rumors, these are things that he and others have said. 
So he dies in 1994. Right? The revolution happened in 1978. The, uh, the signature of people who signed the obituary um, um, for him includes, and these are people in Iran, almost every single prominent intellectual philosophers of Iran includes from Jawad Habatabari to Dinani to Shahidi to the list has about 23 names all extremely well known from my point of view of saying that this guy was a stupid misguided fascist on the one hand, and some of these people have said this, and also praising him doesn't make sense. Secondly, the same, at the same time when he died in 1994, Ahoy wrote a piece about him. Anybody know how I can go back? Anyhow, I, I may not have this. I, I just summarize it to you. Ashuri in Negoheno writes an article. And Ashuri basically makes, I make two points that he makes. One is that with the death of Fadid, Iran lost his, his, the first modern philosopher of Iran. Actually, the translation is not good. He writes in Farsi, and he's a very good writer. It's more reverent than I'm telling you. And then he goes on to say that the most important issue in modern Iran is the crisis we have in our relationship with the West. And there is no one in Iran, in history of Iran, from Mashute until now, who has been able to articulate this crisis than Fadi. Right? To be honest, he moderates his tone in part of this article by saying that, well, regardless of whether we agree with him politically or not, I know Darish Ashuri and certainly Darish Ashuri would not agree with him on his politics. But in terms of ideas, I think this piece is pretty graceful. And then a few years later, he wrote this piece that I cannot connect these two pieces. What I want to tell you is not about Ashuri. What I want to tell you is that I can give you ten other examples of people who at the time, or at some time, praised this guy and then later totally dismissed him. So I think what the point I'm trying to make is that part of this is political. I don't understand Ashuri's things because it's about 15 years after the revolution that he's saying this. But part of it, I think, is that it may be. This is something that I am not sure, but I think there are evidence of it that, in some respect, Fardid represents a particular generation of Iranian intellectuals with all the good and ugly about them. Let me give you some examples. One. 
That's why that party never wrote anything. Which is true. The, the three articles that I told you, and these are very beautiful essays. This is all he has written. I don't know whether I would even have time to get into his ideas, but there are several articles by his students in post-revolutionary time that I had to rely on them and some interviews to see what his ideas are. He never wrote anything. On the other hand, this is not, and he may be an extreme case. On the other hand, I just mentioned Aryanpu, I mean Hussein Aryanpu. We always assumed that he was one of the great intellectuals in Iran. He also more or less never wrote anything. He translated a book. He had some, you know, gave some lectures that became text, but he, you know, Aryanpu never did any research or any, any, any serious work. The, the person that we call the father of Iranian sociology, somebody who politically I respect, Dr. Sadiri, absolutely never wrote anything. The father of Iranian sociology never, well, actually wrote an introduction to a book on Shahnameh. That's all. First of all, that's literature. Pardon me? On Aristotle. Not on Shahnameh, on Aristotle. Uh, well, maybe, I'm, I'm sure that if, if I'm wrong on this. That basically has no sociological writings. Uh, both of them, both Sadiri and Aliyampur, were in the business of coming up with translations of words, which is what all the Farbids, the students are proud of coming up with names such as restructification and others. Uh, and his degree. There is all this controversy about, well, he never really had a PhD. I, I, we don't have time to go into that. The names of eminent Iranians who were in his situation, the, this was such a big routine in Iran that Tehran University had a particular commission of people who would get these folks and uh, basically offer them PhDs. None of these are really unique to family. Right? Um, so I think there is something bigger than uh, that. And even with, with both Aryanpur and with um, Dr. Shari Ati about what they studied, what they said they studied, these are all problematic. Do we have a little time for me to get into some of these ideas at least a bit? Yeah. Okay. Now, In fact, there is so much to say that um, I, I'm tempted to ask Dr. Milani to, to order some pizza <laughs> so that we can sit here and, uh, and talk about, about him. Now, my research is mainly based on several books, particularly one book that his students have published based on his lectures and his lessons. You know, we have to assume that these are true, but these are people who love Farbid and have produced this works. Extremely difficult to understand. Part of it is totally impossible to understand and goes on and on about things that are not pertinent to anything. Right? Um, that is his story. Now, there are two controversies here that I want to reject. Um, Iranian intellectuals love, love affair with Heidegger. 
is a long, long, long story. And most critical books about Heidegger, basically, from my perspective, are based on time, saying that there is no relation between Heidegger and Fadid, or that Fadid did not understand Heidegger. To me, this doesn't make sense, because if there is one Iranian <laughs> who should know Heidegger is him. He wrote about them, he studied in the same university that he had some present, he knew German, and he claimed that he was Hamsukhane Heidegger. Heidegger had some kind of um, uh, love affair with fascism, during the Hitler time. And Fadi had you know, some kind of love affair with the fascistic segment of the Islamic Republic, with our open things. And I also think that I may not have time to get into that. There are a strong evidence that even these invented ideas that he came for, and they look so strange, are based on Heideggerian philosophy. So I reject that. The other, the other argument by his students and associates are that Fadid was never important. This is also another strange thing. We have interviewed many of his close students and associates, including Gabriel. Gabriel, I'm sorry. Uh, their claim is that Fadid was never important these poor little man who, who never ever in Iran took him seriously, why is it that everybody is criticizing him? In fact, the latest one, my graduate students in April, when he interviewed several folks in Iran, and these are well-known people, but I don't want to give names. Um, one of them said, well, ask Dr. Mishabasi to go and criticize Dr. Suruj. He is in power in Iran, not Fadi. And actually, these comments have been made by others. I'm sure that Dr. Suresh will know this. They still feel that it's Suresh in power in Iran. And these are people who are in pretty powerful places in Iran. So there are defensive or aggressively defensive, uh, but they are always defensive in any areas of Fadi's life or thought. For instance, they all start saying that we know that he wasn't a real Muslim. Well, <laughs> we know that Fadi would drink, uh, drink not necessarily water, stronger than water. <laughs> we knew that he married a French woman whose name we don't know, he never talked about her. Then he remarried. Um, he forbid his he has a son and a daughter. He didn't want them to study philosophy and encourage them to leave Iran. Three of them live in this country. Um, a number of his, um, his, his main students actually don't live in Iran. These are all very interesting. And, um, and they deny that Fadi ever had any influence in Iranian politics. That's what, what you get from them. Um, they also try to say that he was not that 
met influenced by Heidegger, although he understood Heidegger very well, um, his ideas are genuinely his own. Now, there are three areas of his thought that are very important. I just try to say them in, uh, like, give you a list of them. Um, Fabit has this very strange view of this, which is, from my perspective, 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 partly based on Heidegger's notion of being, being as a uh, um, being as a, 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 a being, I, I come back to that, and Hegel's philosophy of history. Right? However, this guy who knows so many languages, this is how he argues the theorem. That there are three historical periods in humanity, in human history, from the beginning to the future, the whole story. Each period represents a particular name of God, right? Because for Fadi, Esmol Asma is at the core of everything, right? This is where the Baatan, the essence, comes from, right? So his argument is, well, and, and Ashuri in his piece tries to say that this has nothing to do with Heidegger, it comes from Al-Arabi. It is true that he is somehow influenced by Al-Arabi, but I have searched and searched and read hundreds of pages. Um, there are very little, there are some, there are actually some references to Quran. You, you see that. Some to the Arabi, but mostly to Heidegger. So what, what are these, um, these um, historical periods? Um, so there is, the, there is obviously today, and yesterday, and there is tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow. These are five, right? Or did I, did I say all of them? There is Parirus, Pirus, Emrus, Farda, Vapasa. Right? I'm not into this kind of thing. Right? No. No. Halirus, Dirus, Emrus, Vapasa represents Tahut. Represent the false God. Remember, all of these periods represent name of God. Basically, Halirus is Harirus represents what he called Greek metaphysics of putting man at the center, or the arguing that um, the unknown can be known through known. We can we can know the unknown through the known, right? Rationality is, is basically where it says that man who we know can know what is to be known. It is also the beginning of the history of Tahut, Zeus, or Tahut, right? So 
Tabut starts with Greek philosophy and it marks with subjectivism. There is no time to say this. He is almost obsessed with rejecting subject-object uh, dichotomy, right? Because he is for totality. And then the, the situation gets worse in each period. Right? Renaissance is the height of Tabut, it's a sort of double Tabut, or uh, double destoxification. He uses this term not that, uh, that um, precisely. And then Ambrose is the manifestation of nihilism. The false, the false god of the Greek metaphysics is now not even a god because the man becomes a god. Now, I have to say in parentheses, although I have actually several pages in my paper, that this guy is called like, like a piece of um, metal. I don't, I don't know what it, um, he is. Um, he is deeply and profoundly anti-humanist. He has no tolerance for people who actually live. And he says that, I'm not interpreting this, right? He is so troubled by this idea that man is anything. Because he always, I also said in this period, it is what, what, what happens with, with Descartes and, and post-Descartian philosophy is that man becomes God, or the claim that man created God. That painted the Rose and Rose and Farda. Because even Farda is metaphysical. Remember, this whole these epics are metaphysical. He is trying to reject metaphysical. This is really Heideggerian um, uh, project. Nothing new, although these Deus and Rose Farda are, are very interesting. Has Farda and the day Pasparda and Parirus, however, are different. Pasparda is when you have the unity of man and God. His explanation is this, whether it makes sense or not, and there was no oppression, because there was no domination. It was a spiritual relationship. He never actually explains that when was this period of time. Because certainly this was before Greek philosophy. Islam wasn't there. Right? As far as we know. So he's not saying that we had the Prophet Muhammad and the Paniruz stuff. No. Paniruz is even before, before the Greek philosophy. Where is Paniruz? We don't know. I can say that, well, Hegel or Marx, maybe it's the early commune or something, but he was anti-Marxist. It's not clear, but it is clear that the day after Pardon is also where there will be no domination or oppression, and that's where man is liberated and we reach the ultimate goal. Now, let me give you examples of what he means by that. This has to do with something else. Now, in trying to describe what is this passage, 
Hasbard, his discussion of Hasbard though, focuses on the issue of violence and sovereignty. Right? Which is basically based on um, Heideggerian uh, theory of ontology. So the Greek philosophy is about naked domination. Which is really his critique of instrumental reason. By the way, he also was very much interested in Franco's school, since you introduced me as somebody interested in critical theory. Marcos, in particular, he has this So he feels that all the old form of dominations and violence that are based on rationalism or, or, or rationality are illegitimate. Legitimate in the sense that they represent oppression. However, in Pasfada, the domination or leadership is a, a spiritual domination, is a, a spiritual violence, if you want to call it that. Because, again, I don't want to take your time, he goes into this, he said that we have to make a distinction between Vali and Vali. Right? Vali is a spiritual guardianship that he said it manifests in Imam Khomeini's theory of Velayat al-Fahi and it is and we have to totally submit to the will of this ritual being. So Pasfata is not very fancy communist utopia is something that you know, as he would say although he contradicts himself a little bit Later he said, well, I was wrong because I thought the Islamic revolution was the beginning of Pasfaga. Now that I see signs of democracy, I realize that this is not a real revolution. So you see what he's trying, trying to say. Um, so this, he goes on and on on this body and body and how different it is. But basically he says that Um, that is that in, in the in the case of a spiritual leader, all kind of violence is legitimate. He goes into details of discussing that. We don't have time to go into this. This also links to another idea he has that he has written so much about, and that's Elme Husuli and Elme Husuli. Or Tafakure Husuli and Tafakure Husuli. In English, um, Knowledge and cognition. Knowledge cognition for him is the enlightenment project. Is science, technological science, scientific worldview. That for him is corrupt and corrupting and represent false God. So he's not for that. And he's for rejecting that. And he, he, here is where he is by far more influenced by Heidegger. Heidegger wrote this book what is called thinking, which is really, I think it's basically his theory. It's a bad translation of that book. But what is important here is intuition. Although sometimes he says something that comes close to intuition, sometimes comes close to consciousness. Intuition is important because it rejects rationality. It rejects instrumentality. But it invests on the authentic, the beautiful, and what is lovely. And that is 
این امام خمینی‌ست تیوری آف
apparently the I know the person who arranged this meeting and I'm going to meet this person. So then somebody arranged and it seems that he had a meeting with Rabbi Khomeini, although there are some who think that it didn't happen. We don't know. But we know that he uh, was a candidate for Majlis Khomeini. He, he actually contacted several people, including Rabbi Mahajirani, and said that I want to write the constitution. It didn't happen. But he ran, he ran for the Majlis Khomeini. Uh, how many votes do you think he got? Uh, I'm sure that some of you don't know. So he got 200 votes, which is not a lot. In the first majlis, he also he was a candidate. And this time he got 6,000 votes. The reason he got 6,000 votes, oh, immediately, this is my last comment, is that he was a very close friend of Aitra Khakhan. He was actually, and after, well, we also know that he was very, Abu Khan Khali's son was his student. Abu Khan Khali's son apparently was a major figure in Fadayan Islam after the revolution. I don't know whether this is true or not. And in fact, Fadayan Islam published something in Kehan and supported his candidates. So, Two strange things. One is that for an intellectual philosopher who knows all these languages and has traveled everywhere in the world and runs, and apparently he's not a political person, any moment, whether during the Shah's regime or during this regime, any moment he could get a mediocre kind of political job, he wanted it. But even with the, with the help of, um, with the help of other Islam, he only got 6,000 votes. Which is not a lot, right? So this is to say that this is a guy that even people who he supported didn't necessarily and, and really um, 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 want him. Um, if there is time, I want to show these slides. If there is no time, I apologize for taking your time and good stuff. So these are Basically, so he died in 1994. His house became a foundation. I just go... Oh my God. So this tells you that I really did hard work at the millennium. I need all this for... Oh, maybe I'm doing... Well, let's just go. These are his libraries. Um... In the libraries, he has 700 books that are in German. This is most of his books. And you see that there are lots of Heidegger, Nietzsche, existentialism kind of book, poker, Well, the only time that he praised Marxism was when somebody asked him about Popper and Aurelius. And he said that, no, I prefer Marxists to these people. Um, which, he is consistent. He has 400 books that are in French. Well, did my student who took this picture a week ago, actually, it is very recent, said that they also have this place that nobody can go, Mahzan. Uh, uh, but over, uh, there are a couple of hundreds of books in Arabic and, and Farsi. 
Although I want to see, if you look at this, this is the brochure that this foundation. If you look at this, it says that most of the books are about Quran and religious things. This is not true. I have actually a list of all the books. Um, this is a German dictionary. You know, these are different parts of the his house. You realize that his house. Um, so they're consistent. You see the kind of books that he reads. I don't have to explain them. There are a couple of Tafsir Quran, Quranic interpretations, and there are a couple of Mulavi's um, books. And there's some. Now, this is a janitor. This is a little interesting. This is the housekeeper there, who my student said that he also pretended that he's a philosopher. <laughs> and he insisted that we have to take his pictures. But he is the janitor in that building. But he doesn't look like a janitor for, from my perspective. Um, and he said, when my student goes there and says what he wanted to do, he said, Oh my God, Ustad that Enrico Hamahubiyatan. This is his bed. Well, one thing that I haven't said, but there are lots of evidence that he didn't like women that much. Um, he never says anything about his French wife. Uh, my friend Ramin Jahanbaglu also said that when they had this party, many of these folks would be there with their wives. Uh, nobody ever, ever saw Fadi's wife. And um, apparently his mother realized that Fadi would not look at her or other women. And one of his students about this house said that he would not let his wife come downstairs. Yeah, apparently this house is a three-story house. I'll show you how it is. So he, his bed was a single bed. This is the story. And he would never let anybody, any the family to come down. You see that there is a Khomeini and Khomeini's son's picture here. Um, however, my feeling is that this is post Fadid. I'm not sure if this was there. Um, this guy, Fadid, is the president of the foundation. This is one of his students. Um, what is interesting is that none of Fadid's students are um, in any way even considered serious scholars, including them. Sorry. Uh, these are the same thing. <laughs> By the way, if you don't notice, you see this little, look like an old woman? She's my graduate student. This is what happened to you if you go to Iran. Okay. Particularly if you go here. By the way, she said that they were extremely excited. They didn't care who I was or whether I liked Fadid or not, any attention. Because apparently no one goes there and they get no attention. So these are some of his stuff. Now, the, the other thing is that when you look at the house from inside, it looks like a little, you know, middle-class kind of house. But in reality, it is not. This is a four-story house, pretty big, that he had. Um, I tried to see how he 
was able to purchase this because he was out of work for some time. It was, there was lots of, well, he has some Arabic book, as you see, Heidegger book on Nietzsche, Heidegger again, Heidegger again. And in fact, I, I do have, um, so this is the house. This is from, from south. This is the, these are different parts of the house. Um, the claim is that Dr. Sidiri gave him this house when Dr. Sidiri was dean of the School of Literature and Philosophy and Faradid was such an important person, this person who has never written anything, that Dr. Sidiri, who was a very political person, gave him this house. I have never, you have more experience in the academy, in the Iranian academy for even about Dr. Zarinku. This house in Khiyamun Kach. At the time, this was a very nice. And said it was never the thing. Um, but um, this is what they claim. But the house is, is, is has maybe 20 rooms or something. Uh, in fact, one floor of this is you don't have the picture of one floor because the Tehran mayor office uses that. It's a huge house. Thank you so much. I hope there is some time for question and answer, but if there isn't, uh, I should be blamed for that. You mentioned that when he went to Heidelberg, he had some kind of epiphany or change. But he was specific about that, and, except that he didn't write anything. Did he ever mention what was it that made him change so correctly? Did he ever talk about what was the thought about this? No, he never says that. He does say that I was a fanatically progressive person that trip to Europe in general. He doesn't even say whether Germany or France changed me. He does also say that I became Ham Sohan, a street partner of Heidegger. Now, the real question is that when did he get to know Heidegger? Right? Now, so he wrote, he wrote from Kant to Heidegger very early when he was in Europe. We know that he had relationship with Henry Corbin. Henry Corbin is the guy who introduced Heidegger to France, right? Translated three of his books. And Fadid actually, with the help of someone else, I'm sure that this person did most of the book, very early on, before he went to France, translated a book by Corbin on Zoroastrian influence of Shiism. Shi I actually have that. Uh, and actually complained because he never, you know, it took him several, several years. Now, some people argue that it was through Qurban that he was converted into this Islamism. The evidence I have, it shows that before he got to know Qurban, he was writing about so it's, it's, it's an enigma, as, as Dr. Miyagi said. No, he doesn't even say that whether he met Heidegger or not. We actually don't know what he did. He doesn't say that, you know, maybe speaking, this is what I did. 
what is the evidence that he changed? Well, he does say, look, he changed because the, the quote from, from uh, Hedayat, Hedayat said that he was a fanatically pro-Western person, Davina. Yeah. He wrote in the earlier writing, uh, it's all about Western philosophy, although in his later writings, not writings, teachings, for instance, at Devon University, he always offered courses on modern Western philosophy. He never followed one. Islamic philosophy. He does say that the trip, the trips to Europe changed because but his writings also changed. He began writing about Islam and this pastor, tomorrow, yesterday, this whole thing, and the concept of this toxification. I didn't get into that. Um, he came up with this notion in 1956 or 8. These are old posts. <laughs> No, he thinks it is. But, but what I'm trying to say is that at the same time that his obsession was with the same thing that he rejected. Or he blamed others. And 
I have not so far found a single person who is willing to say that. I thought Farid was a complicated, very smart philosopher of the time. I agreed with him. I don't agree with him now. There is nothing wrong with saying that. Nobody is willing to say that. I think it is because they, it's part of their own identity. Remember, again, I try to say this. Most, I don't want to say more. And whether I'm pro this or not, I think more my, my entire intellectual life project is to, from my perspective, to tell the sad story of how intellectuals can be so brutal and violent and betray their, their own people. Uh, I think this is only one of them. But, but I don't want to say that Fardin is an exception. I do not believe that. I, I also am not trying to say that all Iranian intellectuals are like Fardin. Right? In fact, 
آقای نراغی claims credit for going and seeing everyone to make sure that you know, he is considered a PhD and get, get a job. He is, he does these strange acts that are not typical in, in Iranian intellectual, right? So Naravi said that there is this meeting in Faculty of Social Sciences and, 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 and a French philosopher, Lefebvre or someone, is talking and then he interrupts him. He basically interrupts the meetings and basically forces everyone to go home. He does this kind of thing, but then Naravi invites him back. What I want to say is that, you know, Fabi's criticism perhaps is partly your criticism of Naomi too, has to be. Otherwise, we are not taking any responsibility for anything. Is that we don't know who made this revolution? We were not that we were all critical. <laughs> These people come from Palestine or Turkey or someone, and none of the people who rule in our are Iranians. I think there is something profound going on. From my perspective, although these are my opinions, not based on any facts. I'm sorry, you had the question. Yes, I was wondering if in mm-hmm. your research you have found any reference between Fardid and Ustad Elahi. You have to tell me who Ustad Elahi is. You were talking about how he was kind of pushing away the, the Sufis. Oh, okay. And and of course, Osad Elahi is a Sufi, and, and I was wondering if there was any connection. No, I don't know. I'm, I have no idea. Um, well, he obviously he thinks that not obviously. He in those Fardidian meetings, he tells people that Hafez is basically a Heideggerian poet. And apparently had theories that some people took it seriously, some people didn't take it seriously. In some of his lectures or the writings that we have, he sometimes go into mysticism. But in his theory of historical time and violence and sovereignty, he actually is brutal against mysticism or Sufism. And uh, for instance, the relationship between Murid and Murad he thinks that's false, that's also creation of God, false God. And um, so I think he's ambivalent probably. But I don't know Elahi to even say anything. <coughs> and you know, he has Masnavi's book that um, you read his writings, there is this sort of mystic tone, but it's more, you know, I, in my book that Dr. Milani reviewed, I have a long chapter, 70 page on Heidegger. I have to say that Heidegger obviously is German, is, a, is probably the most important philosopher of 20th century. I'm not comparing them. But there is this mystical tone in Heidegger as well. Sometimes is shockingly brilliant, but still you don't know what this guy said. In fact, there are several books on Heidegger saying that this is an intellectual charlatan. And what we think he means, he doesn't mean. So I want to tell you also that Fadid is not that unique. There are others in the Western context who feel that. And there are others who think that, that despite all his collaboration with Nazi Germany, 
how you can represent the um, the finest moment of Western philosophy. So you have this in other places. There is no questions. Thank you so much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.